0: Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stepman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantha Mitra. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the Spanish Civil War. The Spanish Civil War was one of the most important uh, conflicts between World War I and World War II. One might say it was the most important conflict, certainly in Europe. The common perception of the war is that it was a testing ground for World War II. The left went too far, but Franco was a dictator, and this represented a retreat for democracy. The left defined this as the first battle of World War II. The right defined it as the opening conflict of the Cold War. And Sumatra, I think that this was an important topic to delve into, especially right now, because I think that many see the kind of battles that are taking place between left and right in America and throughout the West maybe have some similarity to this conflict which was very ideological uh it definitely pitted left and right in fact international forces of left and right and it seems that more are talking about this conflict because of course there was a breakdown of law and order in society it led to a major convulsion a major change in the regime that 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 existed before uh and there are i think maybe i think some belief that well maybe we're entering re-entering an era of civil war between left and right in Western nations.
1: Jared, absolutely. I think one of the reasons why we thought that Spanish civil war as a subject is so fascinating are, is because, number one, this was, as you mentioned, uh, a very modern conflict in a way that the previous conflict between ideological forces on one hand and forces of reaction on the other was during the pre-Napoleonic French Revolutionary Era. Um, in the modern wars, that immediately before the Spanish Civil War, for example, in the First World War, there were fundamentally empires fighting each other. Um, yes, there were like you know the narrative about from the from the Anglo press about how barbaric Germans and the Huns are on on one hand, but on the other hand, you know England at that point of time as Blackadder in the in the in the in the serial said once like controlled at least one quarter of a globe. Like, we, we didn't really have our hands clean when it comes to the imperialism front. Um, but the Spanish Civil War, uh, at least in my opinion, demonstrated three different very important points. First, it was a collapse of the world order. The League of Nations failed to stop Italy going and conquering a place in Africa. The League of Nations failed Japan, coming out as a great power and went on a conquest binge. So already we were seeing in the, in the, in the periphery of the, of the world order that was decided after the First World War, where empires were already kind of collapsing. We, ha- we saw four empires collapse after the First World War. The Ottoman Empire, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarians and the Russians. Spain kind of, you know, saved itself up until 1931 when there was this coup where the Republic, the Republicans won, won the election and the, and the Spanish you know emperor went on exile. So that was kind of like a delayed reaction after the First War that happened. So that's point number one. Point number two was there were conflicts which were modern before. The first modern conflict, as we all know, was the, the American Civil War. You know, that was when the Gatling guns and all the modern, you know, uh, weapons were starting to be used against tactics, which kind of was still very old school. So there was still like mass charging of cavalry and people and like going and hill conquering. But they were facing not just Norman people with bayonets, but also like mechanized weapons. So that was the first modern weapon, modern war that we saw in, in, in the American Civil War. And then that went on a massive scale in the First World War, which was like a land of butchery, like men were just butchered. In front of machine guns, they were like gunned down using tactics which were like really old school. Tanks started to come in. The Spanish Civil War was the ultimatum; like it was the culmination of of modern weapons, systems, and modern tactics. Before we saw the horrifying conclusion that would be in this in the Second World War. And the third point, as you mentioned, this was the first ideological war that was before the Second World War. So, you know, from the, from the leftist perspective, it was a war against tyranny and oppression, you know, against the forces of dictatorship, against the forces that was opposed to any kind of democracy. From the right-wing perspective, it was a war against communists and anarchists and forces which were opposed to any kind of civilizations. You know, we kind of tried to think as the, the, the conventional wisdom, and we're going to discuss more uh, about this, the conventional wisdom is that, yeah, the Republicans were the good sides; so They were fighting against Nazis. And yes, there were Nazis on the outside. Germany actively intervened under Hitler in the Spanish Civil War. But it didn't really start that way. And we have to reconsider that in today's episode.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of what I'd like to do here. And that's a great setup because knowing a little bit of the history in the lead up to the Spanish Civil War is important. This didn't just happen out of a clear blue sky. You know it it wasn't just like, well, you know, everybody was you know uh, living peacefully under the Republican regime. And then suddenly, you know these right wing fascists took over and defeated it 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 really wasn't like that. this was this was a buildup of long-term problems in Spain. And, and I think a societal cleavage that was immense. And I think that that's what's really important to understand. About the Spanish Civil War, but many civil wars in history are oftentimes about simply who's in power, who's going to, what group is going to be in charge, who's going to be uh, the leader. So when the war is over, there's a new power that's been established. There's a new, uh, there's a new throne. There's a new, uh, there's a new government. But what makes the Spanish Civil War different is that we're talking about vastly different ways of looking at the world, about a vastly different social order. And I think that this war, unlike many others, that religion was a, a major factor in this war and the differences between the left and the right uh, about the traditional society versus, uh, I think, a new, the new man, because, of course, the left was very much associated with forces of uh, socialism and communism. And so really, I think when when you look at this war, I think many of those certainly who were involved understood that you know, when the war is conducted and the war ends, it's not like you can just quietly you know go back living next to your neighbors. Uh, your neighbors have sometimes violently different views about how the world should work. And so That's, I think that yeah. made this conflict much more violent than maybe others, because this really was pitting neighbor against neighbor, who people who had uh again, no framework. Uh, that would allow them to live in civil society with their other neighbors in the kind of nationalist kind of framework of, of modern societies. That's what made it so uh, violent and so fraught. It made it to uh, to a large extent a uh, battle to the death between these two sides. And I think that that's an important thing to understand the lead up. Um, so, of course, there was a, a great deal of lead up, as, as I explained, up to this war, which uh, this was would make this kind of different in the sense that Um, This wasn't a a civil war or revolution that started as the result of a defeat on a battlefield. So people think of the the 1917 revolution in Russia, where uh, Russia was really defeated in war and ended up in a state of revolution. Uh, This was more of a a civil war and a revolution that that started through almost day-to-day politics in Spain, especially of the early 1930s, which, as you said, uh, there was an abdication of the Spanish king, the kind of traditionalist monarchist forces and the ushering in of a Republican government um, that was generally associated with with the left, the moderate left to the far left. Um, what's interesting is that in the early days of the Republic, of course, there was many calls from the the left and Republicans for democracy. That was kind of the word of, of the moment. But. Um, but that was, of course, became complicated. It was really our democracy, as you know, some people say in our modern lexicon, because the right actually started to build up support uh, in the early 30s, and actually won one election in, in 1933 that the left simply didn't want to consider legitimate. They 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 basically overthrew the election, and had to have a new election because they said, well, the right can't even be allowed to take power in this country. That's illegitimate. Period. Um. So the right was essentially uh, kind of on its back heels politically, where the left assumed that it would own all the institutions of society. At the same time, there was a very serious breakdown of civil order. In many parts of the some of the northern provinces of Spain, anarchists had taken over, large parts of the territory had basically worked unimpeded. They were associated with the far left, had uh, committed acts of violence against their neighbors, this was a time in which uh, many churches had been burned to the ground. Priests uh, and other religious people were attacked. Uh, the left was very, very much anti-clerical in Spain, which is interesting because at, at this point in Spanish history, you know, there already was a separation of church and state. There were already many of these things that are associated uh, with, with the modern world. It wasn't like uh, there was a, a kind of a Catholic integralist government there. That actually wasn't the case in the 1930s. Yep. Many on the left resented the fact that there was any religious influence at all uh, in their society, that this existed at all, that there were churches and there were priests. So many religious people were simply excluded uh, from public life, uh, and and many acts of violence took place during that time. So this created an environment in which many on the right felt that they simply were not able to even participate in run-of-the-mill politics, many on the left who thought that, that the right was going to simply end up on the ash heap of history, um, treated the right as if it was completely illegitimate, but tried to make sure that the right stayed down for good. And that created a lot of the problems within the country where uh, there was a huge amount of political tension. Democracy, actual democracy was sort of a farce to a certain extent. And great acts of violence had been taking place. People started to feel that the legal system Uh, was completely broken down, that it was completely one-sided. And so, of course, when a a dramatic incident took place in 1936, a monarchist statesman, a politician named Jose Calvo Sotelo, was actually murdered uh, by basically officers of the government uh, who were associated with the left. He was murdered. Uh, He was basically nabbed after a speech and killed. The government went and rounded up a bunch of right-wingers and threw them in jail. And this is kind of what triggered the war. We're many on the right in the country, and this is a big moment for Frank Frisco Franco, who becomes, of course, a central figure uh, in the right's rebellion in the country, eventually becomes the kind of uh, dictator or, or, or leader of Spain. Uh, this is what triggers him to think, that no, there is no... There's no way to have peace with this other side. We are simply going to be murdered. And if if we complain about it, we're going to be thrown in prison. And so the only alternative we have here in this system is war. And so that triggered basically a mass rebellion that took place with many of those who were in the army and the country essentially split in two. That was it. The the republic ceased to exist essentially at that point. And then it was simply a long battle to see who would actually control the country, the left or the right. And that's where the the war basically starts.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think two of the points that you mentioned is very important. One, historically, whenever we talk about a formation of a republic and throwing off monarchy, one of the key uh, aspects that is important to see whether that republic succeeds is to see how much compromise the leading elite of that republic wants to have. Like, the greatest example in front of us of a compromise working together is the country that we are currently living in. There, it was a republic that threw off a monarchy, and the founding fathers were, you know, smart enough to understand that look, hang on a minute, we have got a whole bunch of different worldviews that we have, and one of the things that we one of the reasons why you have like checks and balances and kind of this imperial system of kind of keeping the balance between different subgroups, right? And it's because, you know, we understand that if we privilege one single point of view or worldview or denominations or, or anything of that sort, then that would lead to a kind of like a, a balancing counter reactions we don't see that often in other forms of, of 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 legitimate political organizations whether it's the french republic or the spanish one or the soviets so that is a key point that you mentioned the second point that you mentioned is very important is this is the first you know uh, kind of modern conflict which kind of pitted neighbors against neighbors so i would like to like give a background i would like to like, ask your opinion about it so we are seeing a world where the previous empires have mostly collapsed uh britain is still there obviously uh but it's 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 under massive debt even though it has expanded its its territory in in the middle east at the end of the day the imperial crux is over um even the british imperial officer class don't want to go and join another war like part of the reason we constantly keep blaming chamberlain for appeasement but chamberlain was acting for the interest of his own country at that point of time, the British interest in joining any kind of war in the European continent was gone. It was it was back to its traditional sense that you know we are we are a separate island and empire. We don't need to be part of the of the European conflict because that's not in our interest. They let them fight each other, right? I mean, we don't need to be there. Hmm. So that's one thing. But that's also uh, broadly the the mindset of the European continent at that point of time. We have to remember that that continent saw a bloodshed of 20 million people being killed in 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 man-made butchery and the, the the fundamental husk of the judeo-christian civilization that was the foundational yes there were con yes there were countries which were different and they had different interests but overall it was still part of the same civilization that was going away you know that 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 core that that binding chain that bound the the, the continent was almost over and the second point is we are talking about a time where socialism was gaining ground. Mm-hmm. Like if we talk about like in the in America, the Communist Party was huge in the nineteen thirties. You know, it they it had active we we try not to talk about those things, but it had active power in the labor union movements. In the European in, in, in Europe, it was the Soviet Union's first couple of decades. It was a very new experiment at that point of time. There were there were communists in Germany almost who got power in, in the Weimar Republic. You know, so communism was a was a very you know in the Indian nationalist movement in parts of the British Empire, for example, they were you know influenced by the communists. So communism was a movement, was an idea at that point of time. People were still not disillusioned about it. It was still a still an upcoming thing. You know that that oh, okay, fine, we we lived in you know, in this European continent with this Judeo-Christian civilization with, you know, throne and altar and and the emperors and and kings and the church. But here is this new way of thinking where we would not have none of these things. We wouldn't have any kind of nobility. We won't have any kind of monarchy. We'd form a new homo sovieticus. We form a new man, you know, which is prudential and, you know, completely detached from any historical, you know, uh, attachment, any kind of morality that is driven from history. And some of the things were new and coming up. And we obviously saw the logical conclusion, didn't we, in the, in the Spanish Civil War, when they were like digging up bodies of the nuns and and burning churches and the desecrating, you know, nuns and putting like the a habit of a nun on top of a skeleton and kind of like showing it. It was, it was inhuman. It was the, the amount of abhorrent monstrosity that happened from the Republican side was the first sign of how godless communism can be and and i think that those are the very key things so 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 on two on on one hand the geopolitical situation of 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 a continent which is pretty much like drained of young blood because of the first world war but on the other hand also this complete collapse of a way of Looking at the world where there is monarchy, where there is the king and the emperor and and you know and, and, and the Christian civilization, where soldiers, even though they fight each other, they still you know celebrate Christmas that happened in the first world war. It was a completely different kind of war in in, in Spain. You know, the 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 entirety of the conflict was between two very different worldviews. Like if I believe in the traditions of monarchy, I might not be a monarchist, but I'm a conservative, right? But I, I live and the next door neighbor just don't see me as legitimate. Like, you know, you, you mentioned that the crisis of legitimacy that happens in a republic. And I think that's one of the key points why the civil war was so destructive, because the moment you start, you, you stop seeing your, your fellow countrymen as someone whose, whose entire existence is illegitimate in your eyes, where does that lead to? I mean, at that point of time, democracy doesn't exist, even though it, it theoretically exists in piece of paper. It doesn't exist in reality. Like, if I think that because this person who's my neighbor, who's a, who's a conservative, has got no right to his way of life, or he thinks that me, for example, who's a, not a conservative, right, has got no, you know, right to exist. Like, I am obviously a conservative. I'm talking about a, th- a theoretical situation. Like, we both... Uh, you know, uh, are talking about a situation where that might happen in our society in our time, and that's one of the reasons why the civil war is such a such an eye opening thing. Like you know, the 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 way how fast a society can collapse, and you know, people can turn against each other is is eye opening. And Spain is probably one of the first examples of that.
0: Yeah, and you know, I how fast the forces of civilization collapsed or had a confused response to what was what was happening in Spain. I mean, I think that was a huge part of it, certainly reading accounts from those who were on the right or the nationalist side didn't understand why Britain and France weren't coming to their aid, saying, look, we're, we're, we're standing for civilization itself here. We're against communism and atheism. you know you're, the British should be helping us, but most of the British uh, volunteers who showed up, in Spain, were coming from the left, so they felt that well, the British must hate us. They they really they really don't like us after all, and they were very distrustful.
1: That's a very there really point. was
0: there was a really a, a collapse, uh, I think, in civilization, which I think drove many people. And this is, I think, a, an interesting phenomenon that takes place in Spain is, is that in the early 1930s, there was hardly anybody who would have called himself or herself a fascist. It was almost it was a negligible movement there. There was a significant kind of monarchist core. There was a large group of sort of moderates, and then there was, of course, more of the military types who stood for general just law and order. By, by near about the time that the war started, many people who would have considered themselves moderates suddenly started to consider themselves fascists because they're going to say, well, I don't see anybody else here standing up to these, these barbarians who are going to literally murder us. I mean, the kind of atrocities that were taking place there I mean, they were essentially grabbing uh, anybody associated with the church and uh, conducting crucifixions and burnings. I mean, it yep. was really horrifying stuff. And people are looking around saying, well, who's here to defend civilization? The government isn't. The government doesn't seem to care. They seem to be, in fact, uh, in approval of of many of these, act, these atrocities and these acts of violence. And the, the court system is completely gone. The political leadership has failed. They see us as illegitimate. And this was a significant part of the country. I think many of the forces on the left treated those who opposed them as completely illegitimate and must be, again, a, a dying minority that will soon be on the ash heap of history. But it right. would actually represented was either a parody or actually a majority of the country that at that point was sort of being suppressed. And by the time of the war, many of those people, many of whom were traditionalists they were traditional catholics like many others in spain looked at, looked around and said you know, we just we simply have to fight if we have to ally ourselves with uh nazi germany and fascist italy so be it because at least somebody's going to get us the, the guns and right. weapons to, to defend ourselves so this becomes just a big battleground between uh, on one side fascist international support and communist soviet international support where the other western countries like Great Britain, the United States, France, just sort of stay on the sidelines from this conflict. Like, don't get that involved where there is a lot of confused response to this. And so what you end up having taking place in Spain is, well, now it's just between on one side fascist, the other side communists. And those are the only choices left to people. People make the decisions based on, well, how am I going to survive? How, what's the side that's going to be more amenable to my existence under this new regime? And that's how people make their decisions and of course there was a huge amount of international involvement in this conflict especially from those who some who showed up uh like uh famously george orwell and many of uh, those who who uh sympathize with the left but it, it certainly uh, there were more than a few who sympathize with the right or the nationalists who showed up as well to take part uh in this in this conflict which there was uh, i think a lot at stake i mean this was in spain you know sometimes People kind of forget that it's, it's a major Western country. It's, it's one of the premier Western countries. It is a huge part of Western civilization. To see this kind of conflict taking place, this kind of butchery in a Western country was very shocking, even though many viewed Spain at the time as a kind of failing great power, maybe a little backward. It was very shocking to see the level of violence and conflict that was taking place and shaking this country to its core.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, I think one of the, the the interesting thing about the Spanish Civil War was that initially the public support was for the Republicans. People kind of like tend to forget that at the end of the day the Republicans actually won an election, right? And this is this is just so the, the reason why this is so frightening is the perils that we kind of kind of like see in our own times. Like you know, polarization happens in a very funny way. And then it's not funny anymore. So, for example, uh, a very moderate Republican party like wins power, and obviously that kind of starts a reaction, a chain reaction to systems where a lot of extremists on their side starts to bandwagon with the Republican party because they think they're in power, and they try to act beyond. And at that point of time, inaction from the central authority, in which case the the left wing Republicans is a bigger factor in 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 influencing. Uh, The polarization in the country than, for example, the other side. So, for example, the Republicans win an election and then there are like communist factions within who try and use the Republican government to kind of like push their own agenda. Right. And they go against the churches, they go against any kind of landholding, you know, uh, former no- they go against any kind of merit, like meritocracy was what's considered to be some kind of, you know, you, it is it, the same system that you see throughout, you know, in, in, in our modern times. And we kind of see like that kind of parallel where... Uh, our liberal political parties, for example, tolerate a whole bunch of extremism on their side, whether it comes to violence on, on, because of you know, or, or riots in the streets or you know, in school boards or something like that. And, and we tend to forget that we kind of have seen that before, where normal people who are probably tired of the Spain being a hulking empire, constantly failing in the world, you know, at that point of time, after 1898, Spain was no longer a top-tier great power in the world. You know, it, it it already lost to the United States. It already lost most of its imperial possessions in, in Latin America and Philippines and, all the, on, you know, in and, and, and different parts of the world. But nevertheless, you know, there are normal people, there are patriotic people who like their country, who like their empire, who, 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 who understand that they've done a lot of good stuff in the world. But they, on the other hand, don't have any kind of voice against the kind of atrocity that's happening from the other side. So they are saying, you know, a, a church in my, you know, my locality is just blown up by communists because they oppose anything, and I might not be a monarchist and I might not go to the church, but I, I happen to think of that as a, as a connection to my hometown, right? And that kind of you know, starts the polarization process where, where normal people, because they don't have anyone to represent them, they kind of try and find, as you rightly mentioned, you know, the people who would take their sides. So, for example, David Frum, you know, once said that, you know, if if conservatives don't fix immigration, the fascists will. And that's the kind of thing that I kind of see what's happening in Spain at that point of time, for example. Right. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the monarchists had no monarch to support. So, you know, the the monarch at that point of time is is gone. Right. So who is that person who's going to who's going to save, you know, their their you know their livelihood their way of life that their, their normal you know catholic you know lifestyle uh, two parent family you know everything at that point in time is like in a revolutionary fervor, fe- right so so they're trying to find someone who's going to stand up for them and here comes this whole bunch of very uh, experienced military generals you know who are who say that you know we are going to be your bulwark we are going to be the one who are going to save society and civilization and And you you raise an important point in this question that majority of the British people and a lot of conservatives, conservatives don't really like going to war for, you know, unless they don't have to. They're like they're traditionalists, like they're they're fine with their homestead. They're fine with their villages, you know. So most of the people, in a funny way, we see joining the Spanish Civil War are people who already have either liberal or even in some cases, like for the case of Orwell, for example, a socialist mindset. So they see that they are going to fight, and they're going to continue the revolution that has started post 1917, 1918 throughout Europe. And this is just another, uh, you know, region, another arena of of their revolution, of the continuation of the revolution. But even they're horrified when they go and see what atrocities actually being taken in their name. Like we, we, we kind of understand why Hemingway and Orwell and all these people are so disillusioned by the violence they saw on this side. Now. Some people on the left of the spectrum might argue, yeah, what were you thinking? Like, you know, it, it's a war to the end. Like, it's a war where, you know, you're fighting for your own worldview and the other side equally thinks you to be a threat to their livelihood. But is that so? Like, I mean, at, at that point of time, like, no matter how neutral we are about historians, we have to go back to the point, like, who started this thing, right? And the, the people who started this thing was not from the right wing of the political spectrum. You know, they lost the election. Their king has, was gone. Right. So I think I think I think I think you're exactly right. I think at the end of the day, it all boils down to the fact as to who were the ones who started to do the atrocity. And the second point is when you when you're completely voiceless and you you know that you have a whole significant chunk of people who are in support of you, but you have no one to represent you. What does that lead to? That leads to some violent places that we in our society don't want to go.
0: Yeah, uh, you're you're completely correct, and it is very interesting. Of course, uh, you know, kind of laying the, the blame as far as what actually triggered this war. The the far left in in Spain wanted a civil war to happen. They they That's wanted right. to push this into civil war because they thought that would be an opportunity to liquidate all of their. They could find out who all the 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 right wingers who were, uh, you know, standing athwart history, and they can find them in their homes and crush them. They really wanted this. They saw this. Yeah. They looked around. They said, look, we have all the power in this society. We we have the, the yes, the, the, the moderates and the Republican Party are just, they're just kind of feckless. They'll let us do whatever we want. And this is our opportunity. We'll control the military. We'll control the guns. We'll have all the production. We have all the industrial areas on our side. This yes. is our opportunity to finally do away with these ones who stand athwart uh, the change of history. And it turns out that there were many people in the country uh, who who stood against that more than I think than they they even realized. And while I think the left in in the war had oftentimes and even many on the right acknowledge that they had better propagandists, the right had many better, uh, many more uh, great soldiers and good soldiers and, and I think really out organized, ultimately out organized and beat the left. In battle, even though I think yeah. when the war started, the left actually came in with many advantages in in material. They controlled the navy in part because communist organizers very quickly, when the war broke out, um, killed essentially the officers and the the captains of the ships, and so took control of the navy. The only problem is, of course, you control the navy, but you don't have anybody who actually knows how to organize the navy because you killed all the people in charge. So of right. course. They control the Navy, but they don't know how to use the Navy, so they have to bring in Russian advisors to come and help them organize their Navy. So the left oftentimes, and especially in the early parts of the war, has greater numbers. They have more equipment that the Air Force was roughly divided, but a lot of what they had was poorly led, poorly organized, was reliant on outside help. Of course, the Soviets were highly invested in this conflict and ultimately kind of took control of the left's strategy and tactics. The right, though, it was in some ways the the underdog and had fewer resources, was more organized, in some ways was more determined, had a, had a, had a stronger small core, even though it was smaller, and had some of the better generals, including Francisco Franco, who turned out to be a very able general and became kind of a, a uniting leading figure. They had something that I think the... The white Russians in the yeah. 1917 revolution didn't have. They were extremely disorganized. The left had a uniting figure in the figure of Lenin. Uh, for the thing, the role actually was reversed in the Spanish Civil War, and that the right ultimately had a figure who they eventually rallied around and it had point. better organization and out hustled the other side to the point where, you know, even though the, the left controlled large parts of industry, had a bigger army, had the navy ultimately ended up losing in this conflict one that when they started they thought well it's 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 a done deal we can't lose how can we possibly lose but of course war oftentimes doesn't end up the way you you go into it thinking how it's going to shows the kind of complexity oftentimes when these wars start they oftentimes have a mind of their own and things go a very different direction so the conflict itself is, is very interesting of course all the forces that get involved and how you set it up at the beginning of this episode how this was sort of getting into the modern conflicts we saw in world war ii now of course it was there was nothing on the scale that we saw in world war ii certainly and many of the actions that took place were not nearly as organized the militaries that were involved were oftentimes just fighting with small arms the equipment they had was that even at that time obsolete but you do see some of the the tactics that are going to be used in world war ii including you know the aerial bombing of cities the the kind of mass mobilization of tanks and other equipment so you see modern warfare starting to build up during this conflict and of course many of the forces that were involved there like the, the soviets and the italians and and the germans ultimately ended up fighting in world war ii and using some of those examples that they got from that conflict in the next war so i think that's very interesting too
1: Right. I mean, I and you're right. The Italians, like, were the I think was the first power, in from my opinion, who actually uh, pretty much like balanced the Spanish Navy under the Republicans. But you're right, the Span- the Republicans had no support from the Navy because the Italian Navy was just completely blockading their forts. Um, I want to, I want to go back to one of the points that you mentioned uh, about um, the left wanted to have the civil war, and it, it raises a very interesting point in my mind. And we we see that often. In kind of like a left-wing theology, in a way, don't we? Like where where we they, they want to escalate. They want to escalate to the point because they think, um, and, and that, that could be because they think that history was on their side, or they think that you know the they 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 succeed more during chaos. And I think I think that's interesting to see because that's that's pretty much the kind of tactical movement we saw in the weimar republic for example where they had a slogan the german communists for example had a slogan that after hitler it's us you know you know that that you know we we find what could go wrong we're just going to duke it out on the streets and like whoever has got more power they're going to win it's one thing and the second thing is also even in modern times like in our modern like british and american societies also we see the the left wants to kind of like take it to 11 right i mean they 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 are not afraid of escalating what they think to be a cause worth fighting for we often we on the at least on the right when it comes to like traditional right like not not like or something but at least on the traditional right they are reticent to be in any kind of street fighting they're reticent to kind of like mobilize and organize like we saw something in the in the in the parent right movements that happened from 2021 onwards but that was a reaction to what was already a revolution that was happening on like it was a top-down revolution like they the the left-wing governments and the school boards and all these things they, they were they were already like pushing their whole raft of, of policies uh up until the time when normal people was like you know what this is enough like we, we can't and then you know the because that numerically the right wing is obviously like there is this. I mean, if we believe in conservatism, like as a theory, that you know, every individual is a conservative inside. Like you know, they, they believe in their traditions, they believe in their family, and they, as a reaction to to this top-down movement, and that's that's the kind that's the same kind of dynamic we saw in the Spanish Civil War as well. And and I I want to talk more about that. But also, um, one thing before we we delve uh, into more in the Spanish Civil War, do we? Who are the fighting forces? like can we call Franco a fascist like that is a question that has kind of like plagued historians um on, on superficially, yes, he was a dictator and he wanted to like you know save um tradition in face of communist um uh, and and anarchist ideas, but can we call him a fascist in the way say for example uh Mussolini was or or Hitler uh, n- as a Nazi turned out to be
0: yeah i I I really don't think so. I mean, certainly, I I think by the end of the conflict, many were calling themselves fascists, and of course, Franco ended up consolidating a great amount of power in himself. But to simply associate them with the Italian fascism or German Nazism, I think, is incorrect. And, And certainly, Franco himself was very much insistent that Spain operate independent of other nations. It, it really was Spain first, I guess you could say, for, for yeah. Franco. And that, for instance, uh, Adolf Hitler at some point was, and the Germans were oftentimes very frustrated with the Spanish. They didn't, they weren't even, the Germans were not as invested in this war as as the Italians were. They, they looked down on the Spanish. They thought that Franco was acting too slowly, he, that he wasn't decisive, didn't pursue great, right. you know, this decisive offensive campaigns. So at one point, Hitler actually tried to conduct a coup and topple Franco with another uh, officer below Franco. Uh, Franco caught wind of it, arrested the man and and consolidated power even more, uh, more in, in himself and his party. In fact, there was basically that was the end of any, uh, you know, opposition. There were actually many different factions fighting for nationalist spain this is actually a moment which he kind of consolidates those forces and merges a lot of the military units into his own party um but he wasn't really in alignment with say the nazi party in germany or the italian fascists really was and even from his background as a a soldier he was kind of a a moderate on the the monarchist question but he also wasn't sort of this kind of postmodern fascist movement that was developing in Europe, he also really wasn't a part of. He saw himself as simply defending traditional Spain, the 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 church, the people, um, in some ways kind of a, a traditional kind of right-wing authoritarian in the end. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can even see in the behavior that Spain took during World War II, which I think actually is very important uh, yeah. to, to the overall conflict. The fact that Spain during that conflict, even though they were sort of in sympathy with Italy and Germany, decided to keep them at arm's length and decided to stay neutral in the conflict, which I think actually ended up being very important during the war. One, to save Spain from destruction, which I think it would have been destroyed had it uh, sided with with Germany and Italy during the war, but also actually ended up helping the British and, and the Allies, too. I mean, you know, we think about Gibraltar, how exposed it would have been had the Spanish to simply decide to declare war uh, on Britain during that time. You know, what, what would that have mean? with the German uh, military have been involved there? And, and that maybe had, I mean, that was kind of a linchpin of control of the Mediterranean at the time. So, you know, what would it have meant had Spain actually decided to join the fascist powers in world war two, how would that have influenced the war? I think it could have in some very big way. So I, I see Franco is really, I guess you could say a Spanish first kind of influence, I don't think he was particularly ideological in the way he spoke. Certainly, if you if you read some, sort of the speeches of Franco versus Adolf Hitler, I think they're very different uh, yeah. in, in the way that they they're heard. And so I, I would call Franco more on the traditionalist authoritarian side of things. Certainly, he became uh, a dictator who who uh, who grabbed a whole lot of power. But to to write him off as kind of a, a Nazi or a fascist, I don't think. I don't think describes him perfectly of what he was or what the forces that he led there were in Spain. Right. Maybe, maybe you have a different opinion on that, but that's, that's my read on it.
1: No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, it, it kind of, you know, always bothered me whenever I, I, I hear Franco being equated with, uh, Hitler mostly, but also even, even the Mussol- Mussolini, um, Franco wasn't, uh, from what I know, from what I've read, Franco wasn't too much uh, invested in, you know, racial purity and all that kind of stuff that that, that, that the Germans at that point of time were thinking about. Um, and even from, the, from a purely theoretical fascist you know, perspective, there was a lot of free enterprise in uh, Spain. Which wasn't, say, for example, there in in Italy, which was, you know, without the permission of the state. So I think you're right. I think Franco wanted to, it, it kind of wanted to be like a like an authoritarian. But I think I think the post Second World War tendency of, on one hand, equating any kind of authority with fascism, and on the other hand, equating any kind of fascism or fascistic you know, collectivism to uh, science of authority is not a good historical analogy, and I think I think that kind of if, on one hand it is done in a very deliberate way, like Adorno and all those people kind of like did it in a way to tar any kind of conservatism after the Second World War to be a version of fascism. Like if you if you read some of the research from the 1950s, for example, um, about authoritarian persona, you know, traditional oh, you like authority and you like a hierarchy that means you're a fascist. I mean, it's obviously garbage. I mean, it's, it's an ideological research and obviously that the, the results of that is still carrying on in our academia. But I think that was before as well. Like we kind of try and see um, Franco as someone who's a fascist. But on the other hand, he was a very, you know, uh, run-of-the-mill uh, authoritarian who wanted to have a state which uh, can run in a conservative bent. And we also tend to forget that after the Second World War, Spain was uh, a member of the NATO. You know, you know, it 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 it, it not yep. even when not directly, it was still part of the anti-communist movement, and that was partly because um, of their inherent fear and abhorrence of what they saw the the, the, the how repulsive the communists were during the Second World War uh, during, during the Civil War. Um, One more point, which I find fascinating about the Spanish Civil War is, in a small way, the reaction to Spain, uh, the reaction in Spain against joining uh, any side in the Second World War is kind of like a small uh, way, like a reputation of how the British were reticent about joining the Spanish Civil War, for example. Spain had so much bloodshed in the Civil War. It had so much violence. It lost so much money and manpower and and purely just like military qualities that regardless of their sympathies as you say for the for, for germany and especially for italy because you know they, they didn't really care much about the germans like even you know but but they cared a lot about the italians because they kind of thought like you know they're like similar they're not they're catholics you know they're not lutherans you know they're not agnostic like hitler and Goebbels, but people frequently so, don't the, seem to care very much about the germans isn't that so <laughs> <laughs>
0: i mean no one really cares about
1: germany unless germans start caring about everything else but <laughs> but, but 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 honestly uh, i i think that's a very good point that the one of the reasons we saw spain being so is, and i don't know how much it would have affected the british and american strength because you're you're absolutely right if spain joined the war it would have been destroyed like we britain pretty much destroyed the french navy even when france was out of the war because they could because they didn't want to have a threat so spain after a civil war without much power to be like they wanted to take a side they would have been utterly destroyed they would have posed no challenge and in fact they would have lost more than the gibraltar probably you know they would have lost more actual territory. So I think the Spanish understood that and they kind of like smartly stayed out of the conflict. But on the other hand, regardless of the sympathy, I think at the end of the day, their basic calculation was we have lost so much on one hand. We don't want to lose too much in another war, which has got no direct you know, uh, interest to us. It's, it's at the end of the day, fundamentally a war between Germany and Russia, but also secondarily a war between Germany and Britain and US, on the other hand, uh, about a German hegemony. And and secondly, Franco himself wasn't didn't really care much about the Jews or, or or the or or you know or or any kind of racial Lebensraum or anything of that sort. You know, he was just a borderline traditional Spain first conservative authoritarian who wants to have who want wanted to give order in his own country. Yeah,
0: I, I think that gets to kind of the differences also be between peoples, and we have to to recognize this, especially for. Uh, especially for the United States, Great Britain, you know, long tradition of self-government. You have a uh, very different political and historical tradition from, say, a Spain or many other countries. And so yeah. to think that, well, hey, you know, Spain, either either you have a kind of modern Republican system like exists in the United States, or you have on the other side, uh, you know, totalitarianism. I think that just doesn't reflect... The reality of how many of these companies, countries are, especially one like Spain, in which had just gone through an extremely violent ideological revolution and civil war, in which you know one side had no faith in the other, they were at each other's throats. Yep. Typically, when that that war ends, you are going to end up in something akin to authoritarianism. I mean, of course, in the United States, we have our own example of a civil war, which was extremely, but extremely violent. But to a certain extent, when the American Civil War ended and the big issue that was such a, a spark of the war, which is slavery, was gone, the differences between peoples, even though, of course, you know, Southerners you know, hated those Yankees and, and vice versa, the differences weren't so large philosophically and socially as to completely divide the society. And there had been, of course, a long tradition of Republican self-government from all sides of that war so that. The the work of rebuilding the country and reunifying the country could go along in in something resembling a a free system. Spain, you had a very different tradition. You had one that was coming out of monarchy, one that ended up with a feckless kind of Weimar-style Republican government, and then various shades of violent tyranny. At the end of that, you're not going to necessarily end up in the the great republic of of George Washington. You're going to end up in something very different, which is what they, they did in Spain. And one could say that was that was a lot better than what could have ended up had they fallen into the clutches of the Soviet Union or or these various communist forces that would have obliterated their society in the way that the the Eastern Bloc essentially was obliterated under under those systems. So I think this idea that, well, you know, Franco was a, a dictator and a horrible baddie must be a fascist. That's not that's not necessarily the case. And to to look at it like that. I think is unfair to to the situation that, that existed there on the ground, that the reality of what Spain was in the late 1930s and 1940s.
1: Can we say, and I'm, I'm obviously uh, being a little provocative here, like, it, did culture had any kind of uh, determinant factor on, on the Spanish, you know, worship of a strong man that we see like in Latin America as well, like their form of, even, you know, in the democracy, no matter which side comes to power, they have this tendency of, you know, non-compromising, you know, thing that, I mean, That you're right. It didn't really happen in the U.S. after the Civil War. People always say that, you know, oh, the Civil War, we should have had, you know, we should have eradicated one side or the other. But at the end of the day, that fact that it didn't happen is because there was this, you know, culture of compromise, which is, some might argue that that's slowly kind of getting lost eventually. I mean, we are kind of trying to, starting to see the other side uh, as, as, you know, completely incompatible with the with the lifestyle but overall it still exists in the us and that's that's a good thing like at the end of the day you know that there is there are more commonalities compared to you know the differences that might just completely destroy that's one of the reasons why this this separation idea doesn't really you know it it doesn't match well but on the other hand in spain or even like in parts even like when you see um parts of eastern europe for example in, in some places like after even after a long time there is this kind of like strongman worship tendency like what's going on in ukraine like you know it's very easy for some people to say like oh we're just going to eradicate this other language from from high school curricula or you're going to we're going to just stop elections do we see like there is a there is a cultural aspect to it like i mean same same thing in india for example there's this culture of strongman worship it doesn't matter whether you're left wing a nehru or a gandhi or it doesn't matter whether you're right wing modi Like there is this culture of of worshiping your leader is that is that is that something that that's valid
0: I, I think that is in the case of Spain. I think it's very much alien to the modern Anglosphere. I think yep. it's something that's very much embedded in Spanish. I mean, you could even say, for instance, French culture with, with Charles de Gaulle during World War II and after. That's I mean, very he right. made yeah. this famous statement, you know, I am France. I mean, I think the, the idea of that would be seem ridiculous to an American right. or somebody who's British. Like, you are the yeah. country. You are the sovereign people. But it right, wasn't right. so alien to the people of France. And I think even less alien to the people of Spain, the idea that, well, hey, we have a one central charismatic figure who leads the country and stands for, for the country itself. I uh, wasn't seen as crazy. It wasn't seen as outside their historical experience. I mean, national character matters. It it, re- it really does. We're not just right. all, you know, the, the same, the world over with the same. Yes. I mean, certain principles apply The the world over, certain ideas, I think, are universal, but we have to recognize that the national character does matter and how it is and how it changes matters, too. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to Spain. There was, I think, historical precedent for having the kind of strong man leader lead the country. I mean, you see it very much in in many of the former Spanish colonies in in South America. You see a a similar phenomenon on the left and the right. I mean, you see this, the same thing play out, yeah. whether it's on the, the kind of socialist communist side or it's on the kind of right wing nationalist or fascist side, you see similar scenarios play out that you wouldn't necessarily see or expect from a United States or Great Britain or many other countries throughout the world. And so recognizing that this is part of the reality of the the historical tradition of the country, um, it is very important. Um, I, I did want to say, and I think you you brought up a, a, an interesting point, and I think, Relating this to how things are in America now when we talk about the American Civil War, what yeah. it took to rebuild the country after that, I think is one of the most remarkable things, certainly in American history, that we didn't just you know line up all the losers and shoot them um, as they did in Spain. I mean, that's one of the, the yeah. legacies of Franco As many of the left were simply they rounded them up and they shot them. And that's yeah. and that's and you know what, if the left had won, they would have rounded up the right and they would have shot them. That's in America, right. it was there was an extremely, you know, we let him up easily as as Abraham Lincoln wanted. I mean, some have now in modern history started to cast down that maybe we should have gone harder after after the Southerners, after after that. But in America, we didn't. And I actually I think that while that that comes with its own complications, I think if you really, truly want to rebuild a country, uh, that's that's the preferable way to go i mean after all after the american civil war which certainly could have ended american civilization could have nipped uh this great power in the bud really and many at the time certainly saw it that way as this is the end as, as this this short experiment liberty was going to go yeah. because of the ability to rebuild the country and and make many southerners once again feel like they are americans once again you know in this in the, in the the spanish-american war there were many there was actually a a confederate former confederate general fighting for the u.s who actually made a quote he had a quote on a battlefield in in cuba you know he's like oh go get those yankees oh i mean the spanish i mean the spanish but (laughs) a lot of those those rebuilding efforts were critical to the future of the country where on the battlefields of world war one and world war two you know you have George S. Patton, the son of a, a, a Confederate, uh, you know, came from a long line of Virginians and Southerners, saying that America will 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 have has never and ne- never will lose a war, and, and seeing himself simply as part of the American tradition once again. And you know, you had Southerners and Northerners and Westerners yeah. all fighting together under the same flag. Uh, that's that's an incredible thing. That's that's a that's a product of the rebuilding that took place you know, after the war. And in many other traditions, that doesn't happen. You end up with. Uh, a series of uh, violence and retribution one side or another. In some cases, the country never rebuilds itself. There is no more. The political unit that existed before disappears. And I think that's an important thing to understand, especially in our own time, is I think some of the the issues that divide us uh, in the West are starting to become more fundamental than even the things that led to, say, the first American Civil War, where it's not just one issue. It's all the issues. You don't see yourself as forming a civil society with your neighbors because they see the, the world in such a fundamentally different way. And the attitude is you know they shouldn't they don't even have a right to exist around you. They should be simply stamped out, they should be silenced. And that's where you end up in something very dangerous akin to the Spanish Civil War, which you know one side or, or another, you end up with somebody like like a Franco simply grabbing power and, and doing what needs to be done to survive. But you don't end up in a system of of liberty and self-government like what we've enjoyed in the United States through all our history, that the system that, that comes as a product of that looks very, very different. And, and the freedom that was built and the traditions they're built are simply gone. And you simply have to adjust to the new reality. And I think that's a big lesson that we can draw, I think, from the Spanish Civil War, especially as there's some talk that... You know our own fights between left and right are heating up. You know maybe we need on the right a new Franco to rise up. <laughs> but We have to consider. You know what, what do you think of that, the... Jared? <laughs> well, that has been a, a discussion that has been on sort of the online right. I, I I've noticed on 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 X, formerly known as Twitter, there was one. I think his name uh, is Owen Stracken post. post posited this question you know there's some on the right saying that we need a protestant franco to lead lead america and i thought it was interesting both in his attitude seeing as just inherently bad and someone you know saying oh yeah sure we need a, a protestant franco one i i i think what franco actually did there um ha- is sort of what had to be done they were in a state of war franco Took charge of a war that was was one of desperation. That so you can see, well, hey, if you're actually in a war, you hope you have a leader who's as dedicated and organized and capable as a Franco. You know, if you go into battle, you want somebody who is intelligent, and understands, who is a warrior. At the same time, if America ends up with a Protestant Franco, what even is America at the end of that? Right. I mean, it's not it's not even the same country that. You know, if you if you really want to save America, really want to preserve what we are, then that can't happen. You know, this is the country of George Washington, the Constitution. If we really accept that that country is completely dead, it no longer exists. Well, then, yeah. But I mean, sure, you you end up with a a Protestant Franco, but you don't know what what that's going to be. Maybe that's better in certain circumstances. But If you're at that point, you're probably already at war anyway. And I think that the if you are really a conservative in any way, you should want to do everything you can to to stave off that disaster we want to continue being the republic of george washington rather than a nationalist spain or whatever else it is and that's that's kind of my take on that
1: i think one of the things you mentioned is key and from from a like from a geopolitical perspective is um the compromise was uh, after the civil war was on one hand, because it was there was like cultural similarity between the two sides, uh, there were like questions about slavery and economy and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, there were it, it was still a country which was culturally similar to each other. Um, but also, there was this huge fear of foreign great power influence. If you if the country is that in in a position where it cannot coherently get joined and function and continue as it is in its current form, what happens? And it breaks away if you break away you are more susceptible to foreign influence like part of the reason why you know, there was this huge compromise from both sides was because they didn't want European powers to be influencing. And Britain, I mean, for, for a moment under Salisbury, decided to intervene um, on the side of the South. But they, it didn't at the end of the day uh, because they had other, you know, issues and pressing matters. And at the end of the day, Britain was an isolationist power in the in the 19th century. Uh, they didn't want to join a fight that they had nothing to do directly. Um, but also, um, the Republic continued and existed as a great power because there was a compromise and when when people talk about um this non-compromising attitude about the other side what they don't realize is because the more divided you are it's not just because you're divided and you're going to fight each other but you guys, there will be other foreign actors who would take that opportunity of pouring more fuel in that fire so that you fight against each other so yeah i mean the libs constantly talk about uh, you know, Russian influence, for example. What they don't seem to understand is like they are equal influenced by the other side. You know, they see stuff at TikTok against their own countrymen, and they don't. You know, they they are they are they don't understand that their foreign influence can be very subtle, and it still could poison against your own countrymen without you know any kind of interference. And also, as you mentioned about Protestant Franco, uh, Protestantism as a theory. Is you know, as a, as a worldview or as or, or religion is stunted by the fundamental question of authority of denomination. So when we talk about Protestant Franco, like for the for the Catholics, for example, they have got one single authority to talk about. You know, when we talk about Protestant, I mean, well, people don't seem to realize that the United States at one point of time in its early history had a state church. The reason that the state church, the Anglican church, didn't continue as a state church was not because of anyone else, but because of other Protestants who didn't want to pay money to the Anglican church. So when we talk about the Protestant what, what, what are we talking about? Like, I mean, how, how is that going to happen? Like, they just want, like, the, the people are just going to come together and decide like, we're just going to crown you king. Because that is, you're right. I mean, that at that point of time, the, the old republic is dead already like the moment the, the form that we know it today is no longer existing and we are like just you know trying to find out who's at power at that point of time so what books before we end like i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you what books are you reading um about the spanish civil war that we should we should recommend
0: yeah i, I think that for me the best in English, single volume is written by a historian named Stanley G. Payne called The Spanish Civil War. He's written a number of books about the Spanish Civil War. I think he has an excellent take because I think one of the issues with many of the histories of the war is that they do tend to have a kind of left-wing skew, a a very pro-Republican skew. Payne, I wouldn't necessarily call him having... would say he has a right-wing skew, although I think he sometimes... I mean, I think it, just the reality, I think he's a good scholar. It's some, the right tends to look a little more favorable in his account. Uh, but he's really a, an excellent scholar, and his book is very real. Well, really gets the details of what was happening in Spain before the war actually broke out, because I think that's a large part of what's important in understanding the Spanish Civil War. is not just how the, the war was conducted, but the forces that were in play as it kind of unfolded. And I think... He did an excellent job of that. So I would highly recommend Stanley Payne's book on not just the Spanish Civil War, which is his main book, but his other books as well. Another book, I think, of interest because, again, as I said, a lot of the perspectives about the war tend to come from the Republican side, including some of the independent observers. Uh, there's a, a good book. It's kind of a memoir by a man named Peter Kemp. It's called Mine Were of Trouble. He actually wrote a trilogy of books. Um, he was a a British, young British man who was wanting to become a, a lawyer, decided that what he saw happening in Spain, uh, how the, the Republicans were attacking and butchering uh, priests and, and religious people were uh, representing anti-civilizational forces, decides to go and join up with the nationalists in Spain. He wasn't a fascist. He had no alignment with the fascists. He had no desire to fight on the side of fascism. But he saw himself as siding with tradition and religion and civilization. So actually volunteered in nationalist Spain. Very uncommon for, for British at the time. Most of the volunteers, it was much easier for the left because they had many international organizations that facilitated foreigners showing up. The nationalists in Spain were a little more wary of outsiders coming. But he was able to integrate himself with uh, Spanish forces, nationalist forces, and has a very different perspective in, on many of the incidents that took place. I mean, he, he acknowledges that, hey, you know, the left is actually was better at propaganda than the right was. You know, we should we should work on that and and had very many interesting observations, ended up actually fighting for, for the British military after the war in World War Two. I believe he served in the Balkans. Um, and lit a very interesting life. So, from a very different kind of perspective of the war from the nationalist side, I would suggest "Mine Were of Trouble" by Peter Kemp is, is an interesting thing to look into.
1: Yeah, I would obviously. I have I've never heard of that Peter Kemp book. Like, I actually have to you know find that out because that sounds fascinating. I'm gonna go with two classics. Obviously, um, it was a time when people actually had. You know, strength of conviction, and used to go and join wars. Like unlike now, when people are just you know wanting their country to join a war in Ukraine without actually you know moving to Ukraine and joining a war. But we saw a whole bunch of people join the Spanish Civil War. Two of the people, uh, two of them were very famous. One, George Orwell, who wrote "Homage to Catalonia." Uh, in his own words, like every line of serious work that I've done since 1936 has been. Uh, against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism. So I think that was that was his start, like in the Spanish Civil War. A second was by Ernest Hemingway, um, who wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls. Uh, it tells the story of an American volunteer. It's kind of like autobiographical, autobiograph- bi- but um, it tells the story of an American who joins the Spanish uh, Civil War. Um, last book, which I would mention, uh, is not uh, a popular book. It's an academic book. The, the challenge of finding good books on Spanish Civil War is most of the books are written in, Spain, in Spanish. Um, this one is translated. It's called Right-Wing Spain in the Civil War Era, Soldiers of God and Apostles of Fatherland, 1914 to 1945. It's by Alejandro Quiroga and Miguel Blanco. Um, it's, it's a really good book. It's, I highly recommend it. It actually writes, it, it's a biographical book which talks about uh, some of the right-wing um, uh, people who fought on the national side of the Civil War. So I highly recommend that one. Yeah, that, those are all
0: great and good recommendations. And just one more thing kind of before we go, I, I think it's it's important to note that, you know, again, there, there are similarities uh, in, in modernity, especially with the case of uh, in Canada and the US, a number of churches and other institutions have been attacked and vandalized where you see yep. uh, little government aid and involvement in the U.S. Many churches have been attacked, especially after uh, the end of Roe v. Wade, where I think there were questions about how invested the FBI was in finding uh, the culprits. And we see something similar happening in Canada uh, where many uh, churches have been Catholic churches in particular uh, have been attacked, uh, especially following, I think some really fake news reports of uh, finding indigenous bodies on buried at churches, which, in many cases turn out to be absolutely false. So we see many kind of reemerging themes in our own time and it's a, it's a, it's a warning to us that we don't want to end up in a situation like what happened during the Spanish Civil War. If we can prevent it, I think that's what's best for humanity and liberty uh in the free world. But uh important right. to to learn these lessons and to to think on them and understand you know where we are now and hopefully we hopefully things end up better for us. Uh, than, than what happened there. Um, But uh, thank you very much, Sumatra, for, for, for again, another good episode. And uh, again, come back to History Reconsidered, a podcast that we have every week. We're, we're glad you could listen to us and uh, join us again next week for another great episode. Thank you very much. Thank you.